Welcome to the Art Stays Here Coalition's new podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. In the series, we'll hear from folks affected by the ongoing arts, music, and cultural displacement that's happening across the country. These include artists, musicians, and other creatives, as well as developers, policymakers, funders, operators, arts and cultural leaders, and more. They will share their stories and their own voices to best communicate the impact that cultural displacement has had on individuals and communities and how we can choose to make it stop. Welcome. Thanks for being here today. Let's first introduce ourselves. Maybe give your name, your role, what you do, and uh, where you live. Ethan Dussault, uh, co-operator, co-owner of New Alliance Audio in Somerville, Mass., and volunteer with the Art Stays Here Coalition. Michael? Uh, Michael Rosenberg, Arts Development Manager for the City of Somerville, Somerville Arts Council. Um, live in Melrose. Love Melrose. Yeah. Greg? Gregory Jenkins uh, with Somerville Arts Council, director, and I live up the hill off of Walnut. Great. So we're here today talking about different aspects of arts, music, and cultural displacement. We have a series podcast. Um, if you go to the website, artstayshere.org, you can see all the episodes, all the different conversations, people that we're talking to. Today we're talking to folks at the Somerville Arts Council. And uh, we thought we would start with learning a little bit about the council and some of the programs and things that you do. I'll start. Um, just as a preface to Michael just joined us, which is We'll probably get into this conversation, but it was a really big moment that we were able to bring on sort of an arts planner. So I've been with the council for 22 years. Cecily Miller, who was my predecessor, came up through like a part-time job and really kind of built it and was there, I think, around 10 years. And I think one benefit of the council's work is that it's always been pretty responsive to the community, but it emerged out of the LCC grant program, which is a core of like all of the arts councils across the Commonwealth. I mean, it's kind of a unique thing to Massachusetts. Um, For those who don't know, Local Cultural Council, which is part of Massachusetts Cultural Council, uh, local municipal grant programs. Exactly. And that emerged because of the lottery and there was a you know push talk about advocacy push for advocacy saying oh well we want the lottery and then you know the legislature said oh well we'll use some of this lottery money to help support the arts irony of all ironies that goes to the general fund now and it you know millions upon millions of dollars so not all that money goes to the council but that's another story but um the council, when I came on board, we were like 2.5 FTE. We're now at seven, like 22 years later. We used to not get any programmatic money from the city. We just got staff support money. So we would always, there was a lots of fundraising and lots of like intentional work within the business community. So our signature event we just got through was Artbeat, and mm -hmm. we used to spend tons of time around that festival, fundraising for that, and then you know all the money pretty much coming in would then go back out to the musicians, to the artists. Um, you know, we started Illuminations Tour. We've done work with Mystic um, Youth down at the housing development. We've always done work around youth development and housing. So we have a core of festivals. We're kind of known for our festival work. But around 2005, I would say, right behind us uh, and right next to us at 440 and where the U-Haul place, there was a proposal that went forward. And this was on a different cycle when everything was about becoming housing in the early 2000s. 
they wanted to convert basically the the studio buildings plus the fabrication buildings there to quote artist housing and at the time the only way we had on record um, an ia zone which was an industrial zone and the only way in which you could do housing in an industrial zone was through the monkey of artist housing and that's how in the 80s the brick bottom community got created so we were one of the first people to actually in the region create artist housing because um, it was considered industrial, industrial and artists artist space exactly. is considered industrial so then it could be artist housing i bring all this up because it lays the context for a lot of other conversations absolutely but in 2005 we got caught up and we created a campaign called space equals work and susan bursler was behind it a lot and the city was getting ready to allow that whole complex to be converted through a zoning and planning process, and we pushed back. And luckily to this day, my relationship with a couple of people on the Zoning Board of Appeals who are still there, they understood that like they were not developing artist housing, they just called it that. So from that, and again, I'll, this is another context, we developed an artist certification process. Got it. So if you truly are gonna pull the plug to say it's artist housing, we as a city are gonna certify this. So that happened in 2005, and then from that, there was a lot of push for me to like keep moving, looking at zoning, and around 2009, we created an arts overlay district in Union Square that basically protected a lot of the arts in Union Square, a lot of the buildings in Union Square, and at the same time created incentives around parking. Like, parking was a big issue, and we said, well, if you create more arts-related businesses, you'll for, we'll forego the parking requirement. Irony of all ironies, like seven, eight years later, they realize, oh, this parking issue is what's been stalling development anyway. So, but from that, we got uh, five artists live work units in the Metro 9 building. And this again happened during the depression of 2008, 9, and 10, or the recession. And then the music building too, they were able to basically change, do a change of use and a redevelopment without triggering parking requirements. So there was lots of things that were great about the overlay, but all I'm getting at is that from some advocacy, working with the community, created that campaign of like, you know, space equals work, um, and really saying, you know, if you want people to work here, we need these spaces, we need these industrial spaces. And then we were doing concurrently a lot of cultural economic development work and doing festivals, helped start the farmer's market, because at first it used to be a farmer's market and a craft's market combined. We started doing all of the the festivals like Fluff, Rock and Roll Yard Sale, so all those events around cultural economic development. And we got money from the state. I don't know if you remember the MCC did these cultural economic development yeah. uh, grants mm -hmm. like back in 2005 through 12 or so. Okay. But wow, that's, that's a, a pretty lot. broad overview. So we do grants where we give money directly out. We've done arts programming, we do youth programming, and then we've gotten more and more involved with obviously festivals zoning and, and art space. And, and Porch Fest and Porch like all oh, tons and tons yeah. of festivals. And Nibble. Nibble, in a way, Rachel's not here, but mm -hmm. my colleague Rachel, we first started doing like, you know, market tours of Union Square to promote the international markets and to really say, you know, again, it's tough situation all these amazing international food markets 
but they were kind of struggling. Not a lot of people knew about them. So we started doing tours and we did documentation around them and promoting them and really trying to promote sort of the ethnicity and the foodways of Union Square as a strength to the square before this square looked anything like it if you were here 20 years ago to try to bring people into the square to walk around. And then from that, we started doing cooking classes. And from those cooking classes, we started working with immigrant entrepreneurs. And from that, we had our own little ghost kitchen that we had. Um, and then we, five years ago, we opened our own restaurant in Bow Market. So we've had this whole large initiative around supporting the immigrant community around food and culture that's um, amazing. and entrepreneurship. And that's a huge other component of our work. Side note, um, in Boston, um, through the Age Strong Commission, uh, mm. where I work, we have a program that's called um, What Unites Us, mm. and it's a little similar. So it happens out at the Rose Kennedy Greenway, and we invite immigrant entrepreneurs, restaurateurs, mm -hmm. and they come and they talk to immigrants. So um, what about the cultural capacity plan? Often I've not, historically, after 30 years of doing this work, I've never been a total fan of cultural plans. I always feel like, if, you know, and this could be a critique of the us, but I feel like our work, we've always tried to be very responsive to the community and to be adaptive and to be like, you know, fluid. And, and to me, plans, they can be good. I also, you know, totally remember and people from Mattapan would call me and there's a Haitian community there that actually grew up in the housing development that knew me and was like involved with leadership. And they're like, Greg, what's this Boston cultural plan? I don't, I don't feel like we're connecting. So I, poor Joyce or poor Kara, like she too was there. Um, well, no, it was Julie. Oh, Julie Bars, yeah. Mm -hmm. You always heard these horror stories of like doing a cultural plan and the complexity of a cultural plan. But I would say during COVID, the community, again, talk about advocacy. There was all this support for the business community and then there wasn't enough support for the arts community. As and always. so we were pinched, but yet we got the arts community to push. And, you know, they really pushed the mayor to release some funds to support the arts community. So, and I give ourselves a lot of credit. Over two years, we've issued close to $1.3 million, our little office of arts funding and that's not even ARPA funds that's like stabilization fund money that we captured the mayor and I captured and we did that at the same time we were going through these meetings during COVID there was like well what are we doing what are we doing about the stabilization of our community we you know we need a plan so a lot of people started becoming more vocal saying the city should have a cultural plan so we actually carved out some of that money point blank $80,000 and it took us a little while we did an RFP and we started a cultural planning process and we've been going through it for about a no it just started this year so eight months nine months mm -hmm. I could get caught up in the details of it but the broad picture of it was based on the premise of using this model called a compass to like kind of go and do reflection piece based work in a process of doing that but there was very much intentionality that I wanted to do was to say we are going to have a series of ambassadors mm -hmm. we are going to pay them mm -hmm. to then they take and target conversations in the community have those conversations and they bring it back so it's been a lot of process and I mean I'll let Michael maybe talk a little bit about it but we're still in the process of it they've done some work and 
But you should talk of being yeah. on the outside. Like, what? How is it different? I don't know. I'd ask you the question. I mean, yeah, how, so, what are we doing different so than my, most? My previous background is I worked at um, for several years with Susan Silverberg from Civic Moxie in Brookline, and one of her specialties is cultural planning. Um, so I worked on a few outside of tradition, more traditional cultural plans. Which again, like one of um, my favorite quote from Susan is like we create plans that don't sit on a shelf because um, <laughs> that's generally what they do. Um, it, they become idealist and then they don't have time or money to implement them. So one thing about the process that we're doing here with the cultural ambassadors is very unique to engagement. We're trying to use people's networks of the community already, which is great. Mm-hmm. Also paying people for their time, mm-hmm. which is great mm-hmm. to kind of get more of those nuanced conversations instead of like an outside consultant coming in and trying to like Tell you. find the network mm-hmm. and get that like more in-depth information of what's happening. So like these people were able to reach out, the ambassadors were able to reach out to so many more people than I think our consultants would have even knew existed. And uh, even us. And, and they got deeper us. engagement. How many um, ambassadors? Uh, it was 12. I think we had 30 conversations. Yeah, something around those numbers. Great. Um, yeah, and several hundred people overall. Um, because well it's giving again giving people voices right yeah. to share their own experience yeah. or ideas and a lot of them too were not with city staff city staff were at some but not all of them so it also gave like a little bit more room to feel like they can speak their mind and not feel like they're being watched or have to say certain things because they don't want to upset anybody or mm-hmm. stuff like that so mm-hmm. it kind of gives like a, a nice audience like um getting a wrong word an example is one of the first ones that i went to all of a sudden the conversation was like, oh, but, but we love you guys and you give out grants and this. And they started, I was like, no, 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 no. Like you should talk about whatever. Like, and I realized like we, sh- I shouldn't even be there really. Right. Like, so let people them- can speak freely. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate that um, these ambassadors are artists in the community and as such, they're experts in their own community and expertise is valuable and it should be paid for. The capacity plan is like not just saying what the what Somerville's capacity is, but also like these individual artists' capacity to advocate on their own behalf, which is a powerful thing. So that's that's a, a it's nice. It's been detail. bumpy, and it probably still will be bumpy. Well, I mean, that's, and that's there's okay. humans involved. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a lot of artists aren't used to this, and so they're getting their sea legs, so to speak, in this arena of advocating for arts policy. Well, from you know, this end from the Arts Days Here Coalition and from uh, being a Boston resident, it has looked really good. Um, we've talked with Jason Pollins, who was one of the ambassadors from Joy mm-hmm. Street, about the conversations and, you know, what he hosted. And um, it's, I think it's great. Congratulations. And Ajda Snyder, uh, who is yeah. uh, on the music uh, side of things for the plan, you know, someone who probably did not see herself mm. reaching out to arts advocacy groups to do something about music spaces in Somerville is now doing that. And, you know, um, the, the network is growing and it's, you know, it's already at least in that capacity showing gains. So, oh, that's that's great. What do you think? some of the next steps are like do you synthesize all the feedback and then say here's what we're going to do and and going back to michael to your point after there's a plan the plan probably needs to also have implementation and budget and such yes so i mean that would be the goal i mean there's going to be elements in it that are quote-unquote traditional plan because it's going to be editing like changing city processes and what would fit better for things but the goal is also to kind of set out guidelines to increase the capacity of the community as well and other organizations out there and how can they support themselves and how can we work together to support the whole arts community 
as a whole. So um, yes, there will be an implementation plan and hopefully it'll go on a regular timeline. But again, those timelines are always so hard to predict right? because you never know what's going to happen, especially with politics involved. And, and or a pandemic. This whole podcast series looks at arts, music, and cultural displacement. And I think now we could get a little bit more specific about space, about cultural space in Somerville. Uh, Michael, about your position, about the fact that the council created the position, about some of the stuff in your portfolio, if that's okay. Yeah. You have like specifics that you want to start with? Well, why don't we talk about generally what's in your, like, what do you work on and like, what are you tasked with and kind of maybe what your position is in response to? Sure. Um, So my position came out of the arts space risk assessment that MAPC, the Metropolitan Area Planning Council, put together. And they're, just to get background on them, Mm -hmm. they're a state regional agency focused on the Boston metro area um, for, I think it's 101 municipalities. Mm Mm-hmm that kind of do planning expertise for all these communities as well as they started an arts and cultural department i want to say like five six years ago now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um which i was an intern for back in the day um, oh. but um yeah so they did a risk assessment of some of our art spaces and development pressures and one of the recommendations was to kind of have a liaison between the arts council and the planning staff who can also sit on some of these development meetings and all this and kind of cross the bridges because you know, government as try as hard as we try not to can get siloed very quickly. And there's different cultures and different ways of thinking about and yeah. doing things. Yes. Yeah. So I do have a planning background, and then also having an arts planning background. But then I'm also a graphic designer myself. So having some of those experiences, it kind of aligned really well, and I applied for the job, um, which is great. But yeah, so some of the other work that this job is aimed at is managing the zoning requirements for the arts and creative enterprise set-asides. So in the zoning definitions, there is a special use that is labeled arts and creative enterprise, and there's a vast number of things listed under that. We're actually currently editing that. We call it ACE. Yes. Right. ACE. Dubbed ACE. Okay, Um, great. Yeah, okay. Every artist in Somerville needs to familiarize themselves with what we're talking about right now. Yeah, yeah. I need to make like a little book. So what that means is that when development is happening, mm-hmm. that developers... In certain districts. In certain districts. Yes. What has to happen? So the ACE set-aside program is for zones MR5, so mid-rise 5, mid-rise 6, high-rise, commercial court, commercial business, and fab commercial space that is being put into those developments, 5% of that needs to be dedicated to one of the uses in the arts and creative or ACE uses. So if you're building a 100,000 square foot lab building, since that's all commercial, 5% of that, 5,000 square feet, should be an arts and creative enterprise of some kind. Okay. Um, because zoning is can't be too restrictive, the definition is quite broad. We're working on narrowing that a little bit at the moment. But when you start telling people what they can and can't do with their property, you start getting pushback, and that's when lawsuits happen. So right now we're working on policies to kind of work with the developers to put in the types of arts uses that the community needs and wants. So the developers can decide themselves who and what and how? Yeah. So right now, the only thing that really is required out of the and what can be required in zoning is the least tenant of that 
number of square footage that they're required has to be qualified to be in that arts and creative enterprise category. So whether that be like a design service, an artist, whatever, of all the things that are listed in the zoning definition. And then ISD, the Inspectional Services Department, will approve them and give them their certificate of occupancy to continue moving forward with the development and continue existing in that building because they followed the rules. But other than that, they're not really required to do anything. In theory, they can charge whatever they deem appropriate. They can put whomever they want in there. A lot of the time, since their definitions, (laughs) they're not very creative sometimes. They want to put in like research and development because it's like related to labs or something else. So it's not always the most exciting use. So it's part of our our battle is kind of get them to think more creatively and think about how arts uses can be very beneficial to their project. Absolutely. So that's education and advocacy and so on and so forth. Can a developer have the choice to uh, offset some of that space for the use or could they pay into a fund or is that an option? Right now it is not an option. Uh, That is something that we are working on. Um, I believe a consultant right now is potentially getting started on the calculations because it has to be an outside person to calculate what the property is worth and how much that would be. And then once that gets set, they could buy out. We have to set stipulations on it for allow them to buy out all of it if mm-hmm. it's only half. Mm-hmm. I feel like Boston does, uh, in their south end zoning, they allow only half. Mm-hmm. Um, or if it's below a certain, yeah, square say if it's only 150, 200 square feet and you realize this isn't, is it really worth it? Maybe we should just do a buyout. So what we're, but then what you we, also need to create where's the money going? Who's, who's going to serve on that it? committee? Yep. What are the Who rules? Decides? Of yep. All the, the bureaucracy capacity. that's behind all of that. So just to give some context to what we're talking about. So e- a developer could either um, take some of their square footage and lease it to a cultural use. Mm-hmm. Or we're talking about uh, the potential of instead... Um, coming up with a calculation where that could be a fund and it could go into a pot and then some body or some capacity or some process would then redistribute it for arts and cultural use. Correct. Okay, great. And it's very similar, folks know, similar to the inclusionary housing trust. So there's similar types of programs already out there. In fact, they have on commercial development, you have to put in X amount of percentage of money to the inclusionary housing trust. So there's existing models that we're trying to replicate. And even with open space, uh, none of it's been triggered for open space, but because they don't want people not to do open space, but it creates a flexibility that may or may not you know, work. The inclusionary- But the linkage fees, there are linkage fees that go to jobs, the jobs trust. Workforce and also development. Workforce development jobs trust. Um, and then also to inclusionary or the housing. Yeah. Great. This isn't a linkage. This yeah. is, would be a buyout. So okay. it's kind of distinctive. Okay. Yeah. So why, again, the consultant needs to be involved for the payment is also thinking about ACE requirement is in perpetuity. So it's for all time. So how much do you value that space? Over time. Over time. 20 years, 30 mm-hmm. years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where mm-hmm. does that max mm-hmm. out and mm-hmm. how much per square foot per uh, would you deem that appropriate? So mm-hmm. it's like really coming up with that money to make it worthwhile for us to give up that new space right. for arts. So. Right. So talk about the space connector and some other things that are in your portfolio. Yeah. So the space connector functions as two things. We don't really have space to offer anyone at the moment because it's all still being built and whatever else and still kind of dealing with developers on what 
the requirements Process, are because yeah. um, there are formal policies being created now and so trying to figure out some of the old spaces is a little bit more challenging but the space connector is functioning as one understanding demand and need of space so we ask people what they're looking for and this actually really gives us a great viewpoint of like what actually the demand is a lot of it is smaller studio spaces which again becomes challenging with our our a set asides because these developers with large spaces don't want to lease to like 40 different people they would rather have one person that they can that can split up the space so it functions as that and then it also will function as you know a place to reach out to once we have spaces for people also understanding if they have the capacity to potentially like run a larger space that they could split out so it functions as a couple different things. Right now, it's not exactly working in terms of we're giving pe- those people spaces, but it's helping us have these conversations and and understand us, the understanding yeah. need. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the anti-displacement task force. Yeah, so the Anti-Displacement Task Force started out of a residential displacement task force that was going to work on rent stabilization. And then as that committee moved forward, they realized like it's not just residential issues that small businesses and well, as well as creatives are facing displacement. So they expanded the task force. So now there is three subcommittees of the task force, one being creative displacement, small business displacement, and then there's the residential one that is still exists. So the residential displacement task force is focusing on the rent stabilization. Um, they're actually deep in that process right now. All of their public hearings, they just did two. There's going to be a third one. Um, so then the small business displacement task force and the committee and um, the creative displacement committee are both relatively newer. So we've really only existed since May. So we're still both diving into the processes. We recruited some folks from the community, those who work in the fields, who've been displaced to kind of try to understand needs and then work on recommendations that the city can implement to kind of solve some of the issues that these people have faced. Well, we applaud Somerville. I've (laughs) said to our Boston counterparts, we should do the same thing in Boston. This actually can kind of get into the kind of conversation about regionality. And so for folks who don't know, what we really mean by that is when we're dealing with zoning and we're dealing with development and we're dealing with things that have to do with on the municipal level, the rules, the rules um, and the money and, you know, what you're allowed to do where we are in our greater Boston area is mostly the city of Boston, the city of Cambridge and the city of Somerville and of course the surrounding areas. So the work that the art stays here coalition is doing our first area that we're covering is Boston, Cambridge and Somerville. And that's why we're here talking with you. And one of the things that we've come across that I'm sure you have too, is that the work is siloed. I mean, and I guess, duh, cities are cities and they do their own thing and people Boston has different development rules and regulations than Somerville than Cambridge and but the thing that we've talked about and especially Ethan is that we have an arts and cultural ecosystem mm-hmm. where everything is connected and everything feeds itself and whether you're talking about live music venues and you're talking about rehearsal studios and you're talking about recording studios and then the retail shops that sell you guitar strings and the arts and craft stores that sell you canvas and paint the teachers when you're going to see a show or see a museum or a gallery and the restaurants and the cultural economic impact of all of these things we look at it as a region so all those things permeate they cross the borders you know in ways that infrastructure contracts don't correct so You might live in Cambridge and you might work in Boston and you might rehearse in Somerville or the opposite because there's no rehearsal in Somerville. (laughs) (laughs) Although there is some rehearsal in Somerville. Um, 
or the opposite. You might live in Dorchester in the Boston area and work in Somerville and rehearse in Cambridge. Right. Or whatever. So we, the creative sector, lives in the region, Mm -hmm. really. So that would bring us to the MAPC and the regional plan. Why don't we talk about that just for a minute? So yeah, one thing, again, the regionality of the Boston area, because Boston's quite unique for the United States in that it isn't very large. The city of Boston itself is like 600,000, I think, proper, but the metro area is like billions. And then Cambridge and Somerville are the size of neighborhoods in most large cities. So we're looking at different municipalities and their funding structures for all these regions that in a larger city like Chicago would be one city and one funding source where Mm. the money could cross boundaries a lot easier. Mm. So now we're fighting... And even the Mass Cultural Council and their local cultural councils all have divided money boundaries. So all these benefits have to be done within these borders. So we're looking at a weird structure there. And now we're slowly realizing, like, it's not really helpful. Um, So one of the things that this MAPC project is looking to do is take the three larger cities of the cluster, Cambridge, Somerville, and Boston, and look at the current cultural infrastructure. So there's going to be a mapping component of what exists for space in Boston, say Cambridge and Somerville. To kind and when of, you say space, that means all different kinds of cultural space? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, venues, uh, galleries, venues, galleries. Okay. Yeah, all the organizations. Yeah. Even businesses. Okay. Even, yeah, businesses. Okay. Definitions are a little loose, and this is only because art space can be organizational or physical space, yeah. but the physical space is usually defined by who's in it. Yeah. So it's, yes, it's all different types of cultural space. So did the three cities join together and ask MAPC to do this uh, project? So we worked with MAPC, what, two years ago. I submitted a proposal, technical proposal, and that's when we did this arts risk assessment. Risk assessment. And then obviously what came out of that is, okay, here's, we, you know, we've got zoning in place and this in place and we've done that. And then again, what you end up realizing is like, we have this, this, and this, but then Boston has that, that, and that, and Cambridge does this, this, and this. And so what came out of it too, is that Kara was saying, Kara who's the Boston counterpart, we should be looking at this on a regional basis and like, what can we share? So part of it was almost like, how do we share a toolkit for each other? How do we understand what the needs are of the region? How do we understand what's the baseline? And then how do we also look at what tools that we already have individually that we might be able to support each other? Mm -hmm. So it really is not just about a risk assessment, it's more about trying, like you're saying, looking at it in this sort of contextual issue of that it is a regional issue. And, you know, and probably recommendations like, you know, we don't have a formal Buskers permit or we don't have bids like Cambridge has a bid and like there's lots of things. And so it's like, can we learn from Cambridge about a bid if, it, you know, um, business improvement, district. business improvement district. So part of it is like looking, thinking of the toolkit aspect of it. And mm-hmm. that's how it came about. Mm-hmm. But again, what we as the three municipalities kept saying, too, is just like you're saying, if we lose a building, it's going to affect people that live in Boston that come here. Or conversely, if Boston loses a building or all of a sudden we're looking at, you know, small venues closing because of the pandemic, how is that affecting? So that's having a ripple effect. So it came out of this issue, too, of being cognizant of, you know, if something happens here, it will also affect Boston mm-hmm. or vice versa. Mm-hmm. So Right, because everyone and, goes and everywhere. The, but just the mapping component. 
of just even trying to understand all we do is look at what we've lost, but oftentimes we don't look at what we've gained. And another example is, you know, sadly, um, Somerville Grooves, he's leaving, he's moving out. He's, you know, leaving his, his record store. Uh, Dave Plunkett is his name. And, but I saw him on the street, like crack of dawn the other day. And he's like, Greg, it's been a great run. Like, you know, I moved to Melrose. I live there now. Like, I just realized I don't want to commute back and forth. And like, you know, I really, I found this great place up there. And then meanwhile, is it Jack's? And I'm trying to remember mm-hmm. the record store, you know, came from Boston or came from, uh, where were they in Boston? I think they were in Cambridge. Cambridge. Yeah, Cambridge. Came here to Somerville. So mm-hmm. like we gained that. So on the one hand, yeah, we lost something, but then we gained something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a new sort of recording space up at the Kala building that's moving in that mm-hmm. it's in the community, a new Bow Street space. So on the one hand, we're, yeah, we're losing some things, but hopefully we're also gaining things. And I think like the more and more I realize, like we have to step back and say, okay, what else can we gain? And like what I know we're going to lose some things. The cantina is a small business is going to yeah. close. But he, he just told me, too, I've done 28 years. I'm, we're burnt, and I don't want to deal with my landlord anymore. <laughs> so, I mean, again, he made a decision. Like, he just, his son, he's always like, I wanted his son to take over this business. His son does not want to take over this restaurant business. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, so yeah, I, think that it, happens, yeah. I think there needs to be more context to the numbers. There needs yeah. to be more context to all this. But I think even getting the numbers and understanding what's being gained and what's being lost, mm-hmm. until we know that data, until we understand more of how we can work together, we can't even tell a narrative like that. Right. Or like yeah. I right. Right. can try to tell it, but like it's 22 years of history and context, but you still need that data and you still yeah. need that context because. And, and even in this like data gathering process, slowly realizing like how much is just moved even within those three cities yep. yeah and so we haven't like true so somerville lost this asset but the region did not mm-hmm. it just moved mm-hmm. so also mm-hmm. kind of keeping that context in mind as well mm-hmm. is that it still serves the regional population while it might not be so close anymore we have to uh, thinking about two and how we can complement across all three boundaries that makes sense when is their project supposed to finish and will there be like a public sharing or have we got that far yet? Well, there's still another part of the project, too, which is going to be a policy kind of recommendation for each city tailored a little bit. And then there might be something um, that they might do for the state level, potentially. I'm not sure. But they'll do a recommendation for each kind of city on how they can adjust their policies and what they would recommend. And then there's also the larger data pool. I'm not sure if the plan for that to go public, they want to do more work on that project. So that would just be more money, which Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. could cost a lot. Mm -hmm, So we, mm -hmm. that is still up in the air. Um, But we haven't heard back on final stuff from them yet, but it should be soon. And there probably will be public meetings, I would assume. Yeah. And, and we, conversely, every, you know, Boston, ourselves, even Cambridge to a certain extent, they're moving forward with certain new policy changes anyway. So it's not like we're waiting. It's not a, if you know, then. it's not an if then, or it's not linear. Like we're not waiting. Like we had already started doing zoning revisions before this thing even started. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's more back to your issue of recognizing the regionality of it. But then how do we, how do we track this stuff? Right. And then how do you go back to your municipality and try to make it 
more malleable, which is difficult. And, you know, um, I guess the answer is like little bits over time. And on our end from the Art Stays Here Coalition, we've put together what we call the RAPP, R-A-P-P, which is the Regional Arts Protections and Policies Petition, which is on our website, and you can go there and sign it, artstayshere.org. And what we did is we looked at what we think the regionality is and like, you know, some of the you know, tracks, credits and uh, zoning and city built city owned buildings and like all the, you know, how, what are the things that the three cities can all do together that we can all work on? And here's ways we can make headway. Mm. And so we're going to continue on with that. We've been in touch with um, Annis and um, Hannah and those guys over at MAPC. They're doing great work. And um, I will be interested to see kind of how it extrapolates, not just for arts and culture, but then how regional municipalities look at regionality in other areas because i'm sure that's not taking place it's too difficult it's maybe for housing that would be amazing i think it is for okay. how, you don't think so i, I don't know I, I don't know i would like about. to know is my point because there's so much that's regional and so much that's specific and you know every municipality has its own staff and structure and it's anyway it's it kind of shakes it up a little bit so we've talked about the ACE set aside, which is um, a great way to deal with um, some cultural assets through development. How about the fab zone? What is that? So fab is fabrication. I think at the beginning I talked about the IA zone, the industrial zone. So in Somerville, one, people should recognize, too, zoning took place because God forbid we start to develop a residential area next to a pig slaughtering factory, right? So zoning, the whole point of zoning is to segregate uses to create, you know, constructive ways in which we can live and work in our lives, right? <laughs> that was the point. And of, not cross-contaminate. And not cross-contaminate. <laughs> so, I mean, the IA zone was, again, where uh, looking at Somerville's highly industrial. I mean, we were like kind of a bedroom community and or an industrial, you know, community to Boston, they created that I zone in the 80s, the Brick Bottom community, a group, massive group of artists that a lot of them were for, from the Fort Point area, basically saw an opportunity and, you know, developed, I don't even know how large that building complex is, 300,000? Um, I don't know. It's pretty massive, Three, 400,000. It basically has around, I think, 180 units in it. So it got created. Long-winded story, when the zoning changed, we changed that IA zone and called it fabrication and started looking at some of the some of the uses of alternative uses in that. So it changed from IAU to fab. Can you... They also... And then the fab, too, right behind here, all of this area, this was in the Ames... You know, behind you was the Ames envelope complex that made massive envelopes for years and years and years and shipped across the world was an industrial complex and then at the same time the artist asylum so we started having makers that were kind of mixing technology and arts and that kind of fit in this fabrication and then we also knew that there are small incubator types and like where do you put them and so you know, even at the beginning, you know, we saw like a Greentown lab as kind of this incubator. And so all this new energy issue, new incubation, where do you put it? If you're a planner, where do you put, you know, so they gravitated towards the fab district because it's industrial space. But then what happens is they too are starting to compete with the artist community, right? So it's this interesting progression. 
But also we as a city, we really took on this green revolution and to say, you know, we incubate, we we innovate, we're an innovation, you know, district. And so I bring all that up only because it's like this colossal thing of mixing it together where, you know, the mayor would always say to me, like, go for it. Like, let's jazz this up. Let's funk this up. Like, we want to be perceived as funky, creative and responsive. And like, we've sold that on what Somerville is. And that's the ethos of Somerville. So I bring up the Fab District in the sense that that is an area of industrial spaces where that could be created and used. Okay. And can you and say generally for folks who aren't here, and by the way, we are at um, New Alliance East and New right. Alliance Audio. Which is in a Fab Zone. Which is in a Fab Zone in Somerville, which is in Union Square. So where is the Fab Zone or zones in Somerville, generally? Generally, along railroad tracks. <laughs> Uh, because that's where they would deliver product and materials. So we have a fab zone area over at the Brick Bottom area, which was a former A&P uh, bakery and delivery. You know, uh, We have the old Derby Desk building, which is now called Rogers Foam, uh, that manufactures or packages foam. They've reduced their products. Now they have close to 300 artist built artist studios that have been there since I think they're hitting their 50th anniversary, wow. close to 50th. That's amazing. Uh, the other fab zone is right behind us in all of this industrial area down through here. And where else? The fab zone near Gilman Square area where there's the piano building. Joy Street. Yeah. Joy Street actually is not in a fab zone, and that's a whole other conversation and the complexity of that. Or no, Joy Street itself is fab. Everything around it's CI, I think. The one benefit, again, back to 2000, here I'll ramble, but I think it's important, back to 2005, is that when you can't build housing in a fab zone, and that's intentional, you can't put a lab building in a fab zone, it's so restrictive. The only thing you could basically can do is the ACE issues and a few other select things. So what we've been trying to do with zoning is both protect the existing buildings and then take advantage of new development and new things. It's a pretty small little needle to thread because on the one hand, we're trying to use zoning and, you know, even our planner will say zoning can't solve all of this. And if anything, zoning either incentivizes or de-incentivizes. It can't make somebody do anything. It just creates that incentive or mm -hmm. disincentive. Okay. So that's very distinctive as well. So we're trying to de-incentivize development in a fab zone, but then incentivize development in these abandoned areas of Boyton Yards, Inner Belt, and then create new districts but then create the ACE set aside within that new development. Right, from, from, the, yeah, from an arts and cultural perspective, especially in New England, and this has come, come over in uh, other podcast conversations we've had recently, that these arts and cultural communities basically end up in these historic old either mill or warehouse. And in this case, the building we're in is formerly the American Tube Works Complex, where they used to roll up sheets of copper and make copper tubes and ship them out. You know, And, and these buildings all over New England have become uh, arts communities in a lot of ways. And uh, 
So in one, it's it's funny how artists have also kind of become part of the historic preservation process for a lot of these buildings. You know, there's not there's not many buildings like this left. If you could see in here right now, the construction in here is incredible. Like the building is not falling down. <laughs> they don't build buildings like this anymore. It's got uh, good bones. It's got great bones. Yeah. Um, and luckily a sprinkler system. And, a sprinkler. and, it's, and it's fully sprinkled. Yeah. I think sprinklers and toilet paper, those are top through lines. We talk a lot about sprinklers and toilet paper. (laughs) These these bathrooms have toilet paper in them. So, Ethan, you have some opinions about the Fab Zone Uh, and or the challenges of trying to do certain things in them. Yeah, I mean, it's a great uh, set of rules that does a lot of what Greg talked about. However, in our experience, when it comes to saving some arts buildings in some of the other towns, the answer to saving some of those buildings has been mixed use. And the fab zoning rules here, uh, like you mentioned, disallow certain uses. So it makes it difficult to do some mixed use solutions that have been helpful in other places like Humphrey Street, which right. is... So what, what you really mean is that, so mixed use means what it sounds like, different uses within a property. So let's say you could do um, affordable housing and also artist studios or music right. rehearsal or right. something else. And you're saying within the fab zone, the way that it currently is, you can't have mixed use. It's fab only and you can't have housing. So, and the reason you why have house, housing, one, if it's artist housing, yeah, there's a special permit. There's, there's a special permit, and this is and this is when. I, so when I talk to developers <laughs> about the rules, this is what I try to exploit in the fab zoning rules and the a set aside requirements. When I'm talking to developers about creative ways that we can do development without displacement in Somerville that benefits artists, and I bring up the special permit allowance, and I say there is a special permit available to you if you want to buy a fab zone building you know let's say there's a one-story fab zone building the fab zoning rules currently allow four stories and the way construction costs are right now the way quote-unquote market rate is right now it's very unlikely a developer is going to go in buy a one-story building knock it down build up four floors of artist spaces and then rent affordable out artist studios to everybody but if i can convince them hey you can put housing in there which will bring in more money per square foot than simply simple artist studios would it's going to be limited it's going to be artist use it's not going to be like you can get complete market rate but there's a way to find money that can do some affordability in a new build and uh you know i've got i've got some people listening we'll see you know if we can turn that into into real action but the rules are good and they're getting better. Like you guys have both mentioned, there's changes coming. Uh, given that we've been living with these rules for a few years, we're seeing the ups and downs and mm-hmm. uh, I'm excited for what's next in that on that front. So, so here's a question about, about the special permit and that artist housing could be allowed. Generally speaking, and I realize this is a broad stroke, developers are generally incentivized to do affordable housing because there's so much subsidy. There's federal, there's state, and there's local subsidy to do traditional affordable housing. I don't think those things are in place for artist housing, meaning the same kind of subsidy is not available. If it was affordable artist housing, it would. Really? Yeah. Well, I think we just... No, that's... Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, and that's, added something yeah. new And to again, back policy. to Ethan. I mean, back... You know, you and I have had these conversations about all this with yeah. the one particular building down there. 
And I've never once said that, how to explain this or try to succinctly say this. I think it would be fine if he wanted to do that as long as we don't lose. We don't want to lose these types of buildings because once right. you get rid of that space, not back. are you going to get it, are you going to get it back? So that's my biggest issue about what the fab does is it does protect the existing shell yes. of what it is. Now, conversely, with that building, it's very specific. And they believe me, our colleagues are talking about this too. The Vernon Street complex, massive amounts of parking lots. Okay, we could change zoning that says, okay, you could build housing over there as long as you're not going to have a net loss of what you've got. Because again, if they displace those folks, whether it's Joy Street, whether it's, and say, oh, we'll bring them back four or five years from now. Like, I mean, I don't even know what's going on in Charlestown housing development. Like, where are all those thousand people going to move to, right? I don't, we don't even want to open that box right. of Pandora's box. And I will scream loudly about that. But that doesn't mean that you couldn't necessarily still do housing. You can do housing. It's got to be artist housing. Yep. And there's a 20% housing uh, inclusionary housing that 20% of those units have to be inclusionary, have to be affordable. So it could be done. I don't, it could be done with the existing zoning. There are and that's ways. what I keep screaming at. We don't need to change it, right. but we need to hold him accountable to say, if he's going to do it, he's got to do it. We're not changing the, the zoning right, to accommodate right what he wants, right? Like, no, no, that's, absolutely not. Okay, absolutely that's not. what I'm, yeah, it's yeah. Gotta be the right that's fit. what our city council, like I keep, I yep. keep saying, you know, yeah, I hear that. Or he, they claim they're going to do 100% affordable. I'm like, well, then do it. If you think that developer is going to do 100% affordable, then I'll we will let him do it through a special permit process. Right. But we're not changing all of FAB to accommodate Absolutely this one not. man's exactly. needs. Yeah, I agree. That's what I I'm agree. getting at. Totally. Like, and that's the fight that I'll. Have. And this is and this is I mean, and this is the conversation. You know, trying to convince developers that there is a way to do it. I know. And uh, well, in some yeah. ways, it might be a um, maze of of how to navigate all that stuff. It might be a heavy lift to take a while. But there are I mean, we've found and there are mm-hmm. some developers that are willing to do it because they're mission driven mm-hmm. or because they, you know, have a passion or they believe mm-hmm. in the cause. And um, and I that I'll say about Boston, like there seems to be a lot more mission derived developers in Boston than there are certainly here. And I would hope, you know, Peter Roth, all those guys, you know, folks there, like they've not come over here. I mean, I've met them, or, you know, hopefully they will come. Well, here. We've been, we're trying, we're, we're bringing them. <laughs> we're, we're trying, we're, we're, you know, uh, we, we don't, we're, we don't really have ongoing conversations with developers who don't seem interested in, arts and culture in some capacity if they if if they shut that down immediately then we move on and so anybody that we're talking to whether they're at boston cambridge the somerville anyone mm-hmm. where the, the conversation is still going because there's potential for arts and cultural preservation um expansion you know it's well yeah and we have um development partners you know from new york uh center court mm-hmm. Um, who are operating in Boston and uh, Matt has been talking about coming to Somerville, you know, for years. So it's Matt, um, Matt, Matt Snyder. He runs a center court mass. Hmm. They're involved with the interim music rehearsal space. They own it. Oh, right, 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 right. Dorchester. Different Matt. Yeah, you just have to find yeah, the right people. Yeah, a couple over there. Yeah, but we'll, we, we find the right people. Let's change gears a little bit and talk about the cultural landscape of Somerville. And I don't mean 
the physical landscape, but like who are the assets? Who is here? Who's doing what? What are the venues? What are the galleries? What who what's happening over at the Hive? Um, I don't know, Michael. You want to start some of that? Sure. Uh, I think I took some notes. <laughs> I mean, we could start with the main studio buildings, right? We have the Miller Street Studios, the Vernon Street Studios, Joy Street Studios, the Brick Bottom Artist Live Work, the Mad Oyster Building, Washington Street Art Center, and then Central Street Studios. I think those are the main collectives that we have going, which is quite a bit for four square miles of city. It's impressive. Um, it is. It's more than we have in the other cities. Mm. Yeah. Um, then organizations, you got Mudflat Pottery, which also has studios for rent, um, but it's all focused on pottery and ceramics. Uh, Arts at the Armory within the Armory Building, the Somerville Media Center, um, a new, they're not open yet, but new impressions printmaking is going to be opening in um, is that Somerville? Somerville. Yeah. Yeah. Some of our music spaces just opened some, a few rehearsal spaces. Um, Seven. Mostly focused on like acoustic and classical. Piano, classical yeah. type mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Uh, the Boston Figurative Arts Center, the Somerville Open Studios, which is a separate nonprofit that runs the Open Studios event. Um, the Somerville Theater, Somerville has a museum. A lot of people don't know that if they're not <laughs> in Somerville all the time. Um, Muscat Studios. Um, I think those are a lot of the bigger organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have all of the city events, which is, you know, Porch Fest, Art Beat, Ignite, um, Summer Honk. Streets, Hong, Yark. Uh, mm-hmm. Then there's the city events that we partner with other people like Carnival and East Somerville Main Streets, Fluff, which is we help a little bit with um, and Union Square. <laughs> the evolution of hip hop. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot. There's a lot. And yeah. Ethan, have... I think per I think for four square miles, I think Somerville does lift. It's uh lifts a lot of weight. It carries a lot of weight for the arts. Don't you have a uh, fun fact? What that there's more arts artists. Oh, I love Somerville that one. Than the, we perpetuated concert. that, and guess what? <laughs> Once it gets repeated enough, everybody believes it is fact, right? Oh, is that like also? Yeah, we have more city? artists per capita than outside of New York City. Is that the fact? Oh, say it again. That, say it again. Go for it. Now you go. That we apparently have more artists per capita, you know, in New England than anything outside of New York City. I, I, but we are I, dense I was, too. I mean, are, again, that's are. the issue. We are the most. That is a true fact. Mm-hmm. We are the most <laughs> densely populated city outside of New York across the country. Mm-hmm. We have ninety, approximately ninety, ninety-two thousand people in four point one square miles. So we're pretty much on top of each other here. And we, we're more dense than Boston. And we do have some like mm-hmm. of the more unique. I would say like artists, arts businesses too yeah. of the area. Like uh, example of Costume Works is the only like professional costume house that is in the Boston area in New England. And they serve all the theaters and, and yeah, operas, the etc. They, yeah. they Disney. work for Movies, Disney films. too yeah. and mm-hmm. the cruise lines. Um, we just lost a foundry over amazing old foundry that yeah. was three generation foundry full of like Eastern European Ukrainians that they specialized in making those big brass rings that go in between the firehouses where the pole is. Oh, interesting. Which was kind of cool. Yeah. And just jumping back a couple of minutes, the, all the, all the buildings that you listed, Michael, like mm-hmm. I know for a fact that some of those buildings would have been sold and knocked down by now if it weren't for the work that was done at the city level for the you know to create fab zoning rules um central street almost disappeared mm-hmm. not too long very ago. recently and it's still there and i think it has a lot to do with 
um, the, the, the limit the of what you can do with it. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, and well, I think and he wanted a lot of money for a building that actually has some problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, it works Artists for don't us. mind buildings with problems. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, a developer we doesn't want it though. Right. <laughs> Unless it's cheap. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, still going on businesses, though, like Neon Williams is in Somerville, which is like the last functioning neon shop of the area, hmm. um, which is super cool. I love neon signs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now I want a neon sign for the building. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I mean, we have three recording studios and we're in one of them. Um, right? Is it three? Is it four? I think, uh, well, probably more. recording studios of, of the, the recording studio facility of this of this size and scope, mm. probably there's like three or four. Yeah. Because I mean, there's a lot of people have like a room Home studio. with, mm. you know, some recording gear in it and it's a, it's a studio. It counts. But, you know, of like we have multiple rooms, a live performance space, isolation booths, multiple control rooms, you know, uh, you know, there's there's only a few of that size and like three, I'd say in the air four, three or four in this city. Yeah. And was there ever a music rehearsal in Somerville? We had the jam spot, which was an uh, mm. unlike most of the music rehearsal facilities in the Boston area. Jam spot was an hourly. The preferred model for musicians is monthly and uh that's what most of the rehearsal buildings in the area are but jam spot mm. um carried you know filled the filled the need for the hourly rental and that mm. was in boynton yards mm. but it's no longer in boynton yards oh then let's talk star about star lab oh oh star lab was uh yeah i'm yep. thinking of what we've yeah. lost but what was yeah. in and then there's well, do we want to yeah keep first going. for yeah. venues because we didn't get there which yeah. we should definitely talk about music please uh, <laughs> we have the jungle um sally o'brien's rockwell burren i'm not familiar with that one actually crystal ballroom is relatively new um then samba bar uh does more brazilian music um, union tavern new tavern mm -hmm. uh and then there's the armory which in its cafe and performance hall will host stuff as well so you mentioned we've the armory. lost uh, Sally O'Brien, not Sally O'Brien's, uh, Taryn Oag. Mm -hmm. Bull McCabe's. Johnny Once. D's closed a while ago. Johnny D's closed a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. I will say this, of those listed, not not all of them are right. primarily music right. venues. Some of them are restaurants. restaurants. restaurants some, yeah. But I mean, I, I'd rather mm -hmm. have them than not. Don't get, <laughs> don't get it twisted. <laughs> Absolutely. What? Look, we don't have to go into detail, but what's the general about what's going on at the Armory? <laughs> That's its own podcast. <laughs> well, but no, generally. It's its own podcast. Generally, generally, it's in its uh, in the master planning process um, that is headed up through the economic development division of the planning department through a consultant called Create Today, who's based out of. Uh, slightly upstate New York. Not it's not next, actually upstate, but it's mm -hmm. north of the city. And you know they're working with focus groups about the armory space. They're working with an advisory committee, as well as city staff and other community stakeholders to kind of think about what the community wants for the space, what currently is happening in the space, and then what is the city's role in the future of the space, and what is the long term vision for this plan, as well as I mean we just had this meeting today, so we're we're in that process, but also still trying to currently lease out like keep the leases up and maintain the building. So there's also the current stuff that's happening, which is also you know with our own staff and DPW, the Department of Public Works. And to be clear, space. this building is owned by the city of Somerville. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, do you want to talk about the history of that building? Two minutes. Not Two either. minutes. And this is related to music. 2003, 4, uh, the state 
adjutant generals or whatever the uh, the people that run the armories around the state made a decision to basically give up to say we're divesting ourselves of this building there was a campaign in the city amongst the community to say you know this is an amazing building we don't want it to become condos uh the city should try to buy it the city did not buy it but out of that campaign and we our own relationship and people could say different things that our relation my relationship with joseph sater mm -hmm. who was the middle east proprietor is. he basically is and his family mm -hmm. i should say it's not mm -hmm. just joseph it is his family um came and put a bid on it and said i want to turn it into a cultural arts center that in itself is a whole other long-winded story but you know pros and cons of all of it it's a good thing that joseph did this right mm -hmm. and he's had lots of bumps in the road a lot of people i think were racist against him a lot of people brought in a lot of negativity but at the same time and then also joseph has got his own issues and kind of can stay focused not focused but he bought it he put i think he paid two million for it and he put in 2.4 million in renovation funds a great architecture firm that friends of ours, you know, John Hung did the architecture work. Um, he renovated it. Get to COVID, he also brought in friends as the first directors who sometimes they knew how to operate and sometimes they didn't. So it's gone through its own ups and downs of like anything, which is fine, but it's done a job in the community to provide venue space. Uh, design studio, acoustic Dead Moon audio. Another yeah, audio place studio, was yeah. there. Um, Mark Sandman from Morphine and the whole Mark Sandman Trust, right, moved in over there. Um, they again supportive of the Sandman Trust and their work they did in twenty years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so some great stuff. Did it have problems? It's always had you know ups and downs. Come to COVID, and because it's his own fab, Joseph. Basically, arts at the armory, a lot of people were not paying rent. He had a massive mortgage payments that he had to basically cover. Essentially came to the city saying, either you need to help me or I've got to do something. I need revenue to cover my bills. And there was somewhat of a veiled threat of bringing in a soft tech firm. Again, an entrepreneur, you know, an innovative firm, because you can do that in the fab. That, too, is triggered why we're changing things. A veiled threat and then what happened was is that we give the city credit the mayor and you know basically bought it from joseph and as much as people will say oh they took that from joseph guess what it's still here it's still here and also joseph did not complain he he was paid very well for that building um so now we as a city a municipality have a public asset it's your taxpayers it's everybody's my taxpayer dollars what do we do with this building and that's the rhetorical issue do you sit there and say oh only the existing tenants get to stay there or do you say we also need a process mm -hmm. and have an open and transparent process about what are the pros and cons of happened there what does the community want? And that's what we've been going through. So if you've heard some of the controversy, it's because obviously some of the arts tenants have their own self-interest, which makes sense. They, they need to look out for themselves mm -hmm. and worried about this process, mm -hmm. which totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. And community we, process is difficult. But we as, as the municipality 
should not just select three people just because they were there or three. There needs to be a transparent process. Yes. So we're trying to go through this to understand what the community wants and then have a transparent process. So we just unveiled two business models, and this is what some of the controversy was about, um, if that's what you're alluding to. But one of the things we hear about is that how much is the Armory serving a broad-based you know, equity inclusion issue? Yeah. How much does it cost to rent a space there? Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily affordable. So we've hear some of the negative things, too. So then the question is, why isn't the city just taking on, put resources into it, and provide cheaper rents for rehearsal space or cheaper rents for performances? So we've heard that, but that's not necessarily what a nonprofit wants to hear. Mm-hmm who's already managing it. Mm -hmm. So we've presented two different types of business models and it's still out to the community, still getting feedback. More than likely the city, the feedback is, is that they really don't see the city as operating it themselves. And I think we're gonna get to that conclusion. Um, But we still have to be able to issue RFPs. Absolutely. Create a transparent process about who gets to be in there. Mm -hmm. There's two residential units in there. Should that be subsidized only for two people that get to stay there for the rest of their lives? Could there be a residency program where every year it rotates and you bring in a vibe, you know, Mm -hmm. use it? So those are some of the things that we're pitching or talking about of how to create more sort of um, turnover and support so it doesn't just stagnate, but yet serves the community as well. So those are the conversations that we're having around this. Well, thank and you for doing it, though, are, because uh, it's not it's not, not liking easy. it, and some but, people but have their own vested. That's interest. what happens in a community process. Exactly. There's, you know, not everybody everybody has different exactly. opinions, and um, exactly, I think it's super it's important. Positive. Well, I also think it's super important that our arts and music and cultural community learns about community process and civic engagement. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a lot of that coming up with our music rehearsal in Brighton coming up in the fall. Mm-hmm. And lots of people have lots of opinions about mm-hmm. that. So people learning to articulate and hear other people and getting mm-hmm. to, you know, compromising consensus and, and thinking about the broader community that it's mm-hmm. not not just how it affects me or the individual but how it affects everybody mm-hmm. and how we um preserve protect and uplift mm-hmm. all kinds of culture in mm-hmm. you know around mm-hmm. um it's uh it's controversial because people care about it yeah so yeah. um just a good thing hats off actually that's a good thing yeah i, mean, I, I don't so. take all that's compliments as oh, negative yeah. or you know personal it's part i, of I the think process. it's a good yeah it's a good it's thing. people yeah. speaking out yeah if you were like sitting here, well, you work for the municipality, so this might not be fair. We sometimes say, what would you ask or say to the governor or to mm. arts funders or to elected officials, people that have some power about artist displacement, about cultural assets? I mean, that, that's a big and broad question, but like, what what is the one ask? Well, I think well, I, I think because they're in the government, we need to flip it. Actually, so, okay, go ahead. I don't know. Okay, go ahead. I mean, well, what, how would you flip it? Well, I would say, I would say, you know, people can't just rely on others to just like, oh, this is your job. You deal with everything. Like there's, there's, it's like a, there's a relationship there. Like you, but there's the people have a role, you have a role. It's not just like people just get to like vote and then that's the end of their civic engagement if they care about a particular issue. Oh, well, well, yeah. Right. So what can the average Somerville resident who cares about this issue, how can they engage, be better engaged, 
This comes back to conversation since I've been back on vacation. I all of a sudden had this clarity of process in that both of what's happening with the armory and a lot of obfuscation, a lot of miscommunication. It's all about communication and transparency is an issue constantly in this work. You know, the issue of you can question or be critical of the content of like what the outcome of what you may or may not like, but why are you confusing that with the criticism of the intent or the process? Because we've done a great job of expressing the intent is to serve this. You may not like it, but don't criticize our, you know, like we're hiding something, why are you, you know. So I'm seeing that and going, that's our problem in the world right now. But what I'm getting at is quickly, even with the cultural planning process, and I think with Michael's work, I keep trying to say to him, keep getting it out there. We need to keep getting out what we're doing. And I think what we want to do is to create all these advisory groups that will serve our board. Becky, who's a new board member, Becky Donner. All of a sudden, our board is creating subcommittees. And I'm like, this is great. Like, this is interesting. And then I'm thinking, well, why not Becky, who's on our board, also work with Ajda, who is on our ambassador group, and Michael, and maybe two other people, maybe you, and create an art space advisory group that would inform, that would be an echo, a bucket back to to talk about capacity, to help our board who has so much capacity, our staff who only has capacity. And then we do the same thing around issues of immigrant entrepreneurs and the Nibble program, because we're going through this whole thing with Nibble and like, and we got one board member that's all, but he too has capacity. And then we got somebody that's like, we need to get better organized. And I would say, if I could ask anybody of state government is two things, one, Give us more money because we need to pay people for their time and effort. And two, all that money that comes in, we know for a fact, and we've done four years of economic, you know, analysis back when cultural economic development work was. Every time we spend, an artist spends a dollar in Union Square, it basically is generating close to six other dollars. So we know, and that money stays here. Talk about issues of regionality. It stays in this antecellary business. Like you buy a string or you buy a drink or you do this or you do, you know. So the arts create even more economic vitality for the community. So Absolutely. that would be my mm-hmm. thing that I would say to the government, say to us, is that this work, you know, the money stays here, cultivates things, creates more capacity for everything else. So we should change our slogan from art stays here to money stays here. Money stays here. <laughs> <It's true. laughs> or as Grace, as uh, Jim Grace says. Oh, it's what's all the him. answer? What's the question? What's the question? Money's right. the answer. What's the right. question? Right. Money's the, <laughs> money's the question. What's the answer? Yes, you know, yes, yes. More money. <laughs> more, more, more money. Money is the question and the answer. Answer, exactly. Um, it will be interesting I mean, to come back to all the final things of the podcast and saying, like, it all comes down to money. Right, right, <laughs> well, right. it's money and time. Yeah. And that's... Time is money. Yeah, time, time is money. money. Well, all, the, all the sayings. I mean, my studio over here is, I mean, I'm supported 100% by the community. And then I go and spend my money in, in the, the community. community. Mm-hmm. You know, I am I am hyper low. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I do work for people out of town from time to time. And I did more so back in the day when the labels had more budget for rec- records. I would do lots of bands from out of town. But as things are now, I am the textbook example of like that. Money stays here. I'm in Somerville. Mm-hmm. I, I, I pay my rent in Somerville for my business mm-hmm. and for my home. Mm-hmm. 
I, my groceries, my mm-hmm. social life, all of it. It's like the majority mm-hmm. of it is just here. Mm-hmm. So, um, and but, I do think with a lot of our new development, it's outside money, it's outside groups. And I think there should be a conversation about that. And like where does money is coming in from the outside, but it's also going back out, you know, is it necessarily staying in that to me, I would love to have that conversation about our new new development in this community, in Mm -hmm. this city. Mm -hmm. So before I pushed on the issue of how asking, like how, how can the people in Somerville, um, engage or be better engaged you said you know maybe you do want to answer the question of like what would you say to the governor or to the mayor did what was your what well, was your, not, I, what to, was, to me it was both things one our capacity building that the common folks hopefully if we can get our structures better in place through this ambassadors program and all they too can you know it's like the faberge commercial i always say like you tell two friends and they tell two friends and so on so So if we can keep that structure going the average person one would hope could contribute and then in terms of the governor yeah more money I, i mean i will say that sadly the mcc's budget when i first came here in 25 years ago um i think was around $30 $30 million. It, during that 2001 recession, it went down to something like 15. It's taken 25 years to go from 15 up to 23 or 24. The MCC state's budget has not grown, you know, right. given the issue of inflation. It's gone backwards, probably. And the state and the, and the community should put more money to the state. Um, the, arts. the state's arts organization, which in turn gives money back out to the community, right? That's their mm-hmm. job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, the amount of money the arts generates in the state is immense compared mm-hmm. to any support it receives. Exactly. And that needs to change. You know, Luckily. sports teams get Luckily we all have a sorts of advocacy handouts program. and they don't contribute what arts mm-hmm. contributes. Thanks for listening to the Art Stays Here podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. You can listen to all of the episodes from our website, artstayshere.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our partners, New Alliance Audio, New Alliance East, and The Record Co. And thank you for the funding from Boston's Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture. Join the movement at artstayshere.org.